So we get to jump into a new series today, and, and kind of the reason uh, we wanted to go this direction was it's, it's a fun, I think, way to, to, to look at the intersection of the Christmas story, but also um, Christian tradition, the idea of the incarnation of Jesus, of the good news that, that comes and what does it really look like for us to be involved in the story of God? And so you find that Mary, the mother of Jesus, uh, really sits at kind of the intersection of a whole lot of different things. And we don't typically, at least in the Protestant church, really reflect on Mary that much. So I thought it'd be fun to take three weeks and to kind of come at Christmas from a different perspective than what we uh, typically do. So we're going to move fast and try to cover a lot of stuff and have some fun with it. Next week, we're going to talk about... Um, Art and justice, how that shows up in the story of Mary. And then um, in two weeks from today, we're going to talk about gender and some unique perspectives that looking at the story of Mary brings to that subject uh, and also to the idea of personal calling and mission. So it's kind of fun. So uh, Maria, as it shows up in the Greek, is the Hebrew form of Miriam, which was kind of the... The sister of Moses was kind of the common name back then. And Mary, or a form of it, is the most popular female name in the world. Um, I know this unconsciously, subconsciously, because when we named our oldest Mary, we had to stick a joy in there because I think somehow I knew I wanted something else in there. Does that make sense? Um, no offense to anyone, I, you know, but we just kind of like, we're just trying to throw a little joy in there. Um, it, uh, it, the name of Mary actually means bitter, so that was kind of my joke too, a little bit of bittersweet um, going on with my oldest. Uh, so Mary Joy is actually her first name. She doesn't have a middle name. Um, so there's seven women in the New Testament that have the name Maria, and it appears 51 times, and it was a prevalent name in that period of time, probably because Herod, the first second wife, was also named Miriam. So we find that Mary is kind of a common name, and, um, and so let's plop into the story here where we see a small peasant girl named Mary be visited by the head angel of the Lord. So Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, and we'll, we'll begin here in verse 26. Luke 1, 26. Now in the sixth month, that's of Elizabeth, Elizabeth's pregnancy with um, John the Baptist. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. It's off the Galilee Sea quite a bit, um, but it's in that region. Nazareth is the hometown of Mary, also of Joseph, and later the hometown of Jesus before he left and went to actually the Galilee. Uh, and so the angel Gabriel goes to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said this, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. 
And you will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, which is um, the Hebrew name uh, Joshua. Um, And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. And then verse 38 says this, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. And the angel left her. This is called the Annunciation. So in Christian tradition, this is the Annunciation. If you go to uh, Nazareth now, you'll see the church or the Basilica of the Annunciation that has gone through many different stages. Uh, An old church dating back to the time St. Helena, the mother of Constantine, came through and had churches built on all of the holy sites. Uh, And then later, a Byzantine church And then after that, a crusader church. Uh, And then further on, you see the basilica that's there today. A massive basilica, um, beautiful basilica. And uh, this is inside the Basilica of the Annunciation. That's uh, the House of Mary. Archaeologically speaking, this is actually probably fairly accurate. You're talking about a small town in Nazareth where you would have had a lot of oral tradition. Um... And uh, in those days, it was an oral culture, and people in that town would, would know where people are coming from. They would have relatives still. And so there's a lot of weight to say this really is or was the house of Mary, uh, and this is where she was said to have had uh, her encounter with the angel Gabriel. Um, this is kind of a look inside that house where there's a little altar there, and um, There you go, the house of Mary on the bottom floor of three floors that's now in the church or the Basilica of the Annunciation. If you step back and look at it, um, boy, I don't know if I included that picture or not. You can actually see the Byzantine floor. I don't think I've got that in there. Um, The Byzantine floor of the the Church of the Annunciation. Um, But the famous line that really kind of launches us into the studies of Mary or how Mary has been come to know, uh, be known through history is the verse we see here in verse 28. In verse 28, it says, um, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. In Latin, it came out, Ava Maria Gratia Plena, meaning Hail Mary, full of grace. And you'll see Hail Mary, full of grace, or that phrase in Latin, um, all throughout Europe, or if you're a Catholic, you, you would have seen it in uh, many different places. You see it here, uh, going, going around kind of the rim of the painting. You can see it um, on the cover of doors or archways of churches, kind of up and down the old Catholic uh, um, range of Europe. And I think if you go to different churches in America, you'll see that phrase, Ave Maria, Gratia Plena, Um, over a lot of different kind of uh, artwork that's in or decorating around the churches. And why this came to be so important was the word here really means um, rejoice 
or hail. It's kind of a greeting when the angel comes in the way it's recorded in the Gospel of Luke. It's, it's kind of this um, salutation of, hey, rejoice um, or hail. And, and it has that positive kind of connotation. In the Latin, it's, it's not about kind of the positive connotation. It's kind of more of a military one. And the emphasis really gets put on the idea of full of grace. So instead of rejoice because you're favored, you get in the Latin uh, Vulgate, in the Latin translation here, Ave Maria, Gratia Plena, is that, uh, Hail Mary, you are full of grace. Meaning it's not that God is gracing you, but that you yourself are full of grace. And so off the Ave Maria, you have a lot of things beginning to come. By the way, there's um, Ave Maria is a part of um, the Hail Mary prayer. We'll get into that in just a minute. And if you like listening to Andrea Bocelli, you've probably heard his version of Ave Maria, which should be a part of Protestant Christianity. Um, Because a blind Italian guy singing Ave Maria is actually pretty kind of cool. But so, uh, Hail Mary full of grace. Now I want to pick it up all the way back at the beginning of kind of a timeline here. Because if we just jump into the theological things, we're not going to see the development of it. But so what begins to happen with Mary is in the third century, uh, we move from a focus on the martyrs. Because remember, the early period of Christianity uh, is all about the martyrs. It's, it's a time of persecution. It's a time of scattering. There's no real centralized, coherent, um, orthodox leadership in terms of councils and, and what you'd expect when the church kind of comes a- above ground and gets organized. Rather, it's, it's very um, organic and loose and people are being killed, and the key leaders are being killed. And so the focus when you venerate people, or when you're really focused on um, holding up and esteeming people, are the martyrs. Now it wasn't until Constantine came, and Constantine had the dream where he saw a picture of a cross, and the idea that in this sign you will conquer, which is really ironic. And that's when the cross really begins to be the dominant Christian symbol, up until then, the dominant Christian symbol would have been the ichthus or the fish. And, and you begin to translate over and you see the Christian symbol of the new kind of um, permissible and state religion of Christianity begins to be the cross, um, the cross of Constantine. And now that it's kind of above ground, you begin to get organized. We move away from really looking at the martyrs. And by the way, the reason that the... Um, do you guys know the reason the Colosseum is still standing today when the rest of Rome was in ruins? Anyone know? Um, because it was a holy site for the church. It's where all the blood of the martyrs um, were shed. Most of the blood of martyrs was shed. And for most of uh, kind of the late medieval period, there was a cross that, would be, that, was, that was in the center of the Colosseum, big cross right in the middle of it. And if you go there today, when you walk through the, what would be the, I think the west gate, east gate, I don't know. When you walk through the gate, there's a, actually an indulgence plaque on, on the side of the wall that's been there for hundreds and hundreds of years where pilgrims would come and kiss the entrance to the Colosseum to receive an, an indulgence. In other words, some kind of a merit or a blessing um, that you would accrue to yourself. So the, the Colosseum for the church was a holy site, was always a holy site. And so that's one of the reasons why it, it remained to, to this day and didn't get plowed over. 
But so the martyrs were a big deal. And as you come out of that season, you begin to see a focus emerge on Mary. Mary being, in some ways, a bridge to the new way of thinking um, from the old. And so the earliest recorded prayer to Mary is dated in its earliest form to the year 250. And then we begin to see this term, Theotokos, which literally means God-bearer, or more commonly uh, interpreted as the mother of God. So the Greek term Theotokos, the Greek theos is, is the word for God. So Theotokos, the God-bearer, begins with origin in the late 3rd century. Now at the Council of Ephesus, the Council of Ephesus, one of the first councils where they really began to parse out what do we mean by this idea of Jesus being the Son of God? What do we mean by his divinity? What do we mean by these kinds of things? The early church councils hammered this out. And as part of hammering that out, um, they approved devotion to Mary as the mother of God. So all the way back to um, the year 431. So you begin to see this idea of looking at Mary as the mother of God. So she's, uh, another way of saying it is a mediatrix. Um, a mediatrix, so a, a, a kind of a bridge between God and man, less than Christ, but kind of higher than your average human. She's kind of above us that way. So a devotion to her, or even a looking to her uh, with regard to trying to understand some of the deeper mysteries of, of the Christian faith. So you begin to see this slowly emerge through the dark ages and the dark period, more and more a kind of veneration of Mary and, and a praying to Mary, and you see this begin to um, also then come into contact with what was, what was originally called these kind of prayer beads, and then later became the rosary. In the first instance we see in writing of what we would call uh, the, the prayer beads of the Catholic Church. Now, prayer beads was a common thing to uh, Islam, it's a common thing to uh, Hinduism, it's kind of an ancient form of prayer and meditation, and, and it's a part of the Catholic Church, and how much did they borrow from each other, who knows, but it was kind of a common religious practice over a long period of time, but we see it show up in the context of praying with regard to Mary and praying um, the Pater Nader, which is our Father. Uh, we see this show up in a will of Lady Godiva, who was married to a nobleman, and in the year 1075, she leaves her prayer beads to um, a monastery. And she says this in her will. The circlet of precious stones, which um, are threaded on a cord, that I may finger them one after another uh, and count my prayers exactly. And so she leaves this kind of to this monastery uh, that she had taken with precious stones and obviously was a precious prayer device for her. So interesting thing. On side note, Lady Godiva, uh, years later, the tradition grew up around her that's, that's apocryphal tradition, that her husband, the nobleman, had been taxing everybody so much, she didn't like this, she was a devout woman, that she wanted him to lessen the taxes, and he says, if you ride on your horse naked through the city, uh, then I'll get rid of the taxes. And so... She sends out a decree that everybody would close their windows, shut their doors at a certain time during the day. And so sure enough, uh, as the legend has it, she gets on the horse naked, clothed only in her hair. And she rides through the town, except for one uh, gentleman named Tom, who takes and bores two holes in his shutters um, that he might watch. And that's where we get the phrase peeping Tom. 
is from this guy, Tom. And then again, as the legend has it, uh, he went blind. So this is the most famous <laughs> instance of voyeurism uh, really in the world, and it's where we get the phrase peeping Tom. Not only that, it's where we get Godiva chocolate, and that is the logo of Godiva chocolate. That would be Lady Godiva riding uh, naked on the horse. I took a faraway shot because this is church after all. Um, <laughs> And so Godiva chocolate kind of goes back to that legend. But here you got Lady Godiva, the beginning of the rosary beads with regard to Mary and Peeping Tom uh, all wrapped into one. It doesn't get any better than that, right? Um, it's classic stuff. So as we move from Lady Godiva, uh, you begin to see the, the 12th century England um, this idea of uh, 50 Hail Marys or dividing up into sets of 10. And if you grew up Catholic today, you know there's, uh, there's different ways to do rosary beads, different numbers of beads, whether they can be separated or not. Uh, and as you're saying Hail Mary, the, the purpose is to reflect on Christ or the passages of Christ. So miracle passages, passages of joy, passages of sorrow, uh, passages of mystery, um, and you're in some sense asking Mary, who had her own complex relationship with Jesus, where half the time she didn't understand what he was doing. And, and there's this idea of reflecting on, the, on Christ and these passages of Scripture, these stories of Jesus, while, while beseeching Mary uh, for divine aid or assistance. And you're doing this. And there's a whole lot of variations. Uh, you can read a whole lot of different books. There's a great book by Gary Willis, uh, historian uh, Gary Wills, I think, actually, uh, on the rosary. If you want to read it, it's very accessible to both Catholics and non-Catholics alike. Um, but so you begin to see this emerge. You also really see during the Black Death where, where half of Europe dies. And it wasn't until hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later that the population in Europe actually got back to where it was at before the Black Death. I mean, it's, it's a crazy thing that we don't ever really talk about or think about, how Europe was affected by the Black Death. It's actually also partly how the, the, um, the difference between the aristocracy and the noblemen and the lower classes uh, began to be affected and changed was with so much death, such a high percentage of death, you began to see those, those old orders begin to pass away. But one of the changes was as people were, were praying to Jesus about this judgment that they thought was coming from God, God this righteous and angry judge, and you pray to Jesus for help, and it doesn't seem to be working, there was a, a, a growth that happened during that time period of beginning to, um, to petition Mary that she would intercede on, on behalf of the world, on behalf of Christians, that surely she, the mother of Jesus, surely she, the one who knew all the sorrows of, of the earthly life, uh, surely she, being female, um, would be able to uh, grieve alongside and then, and then be a mediator on our behalf with regard to what was going on um, with the Black Death. And so it's, it's fascinating how you see the development of theology born out of practical circumstances going on. So this continues to grow, and then you see the first time in print the Hail Mary prayer from a guy in Florence uh, who is a monk um, by the name of Savernola. Okay, so Savernola is a fascinating guy. Savernola uh, 
was, was a monk and then became a leader in Florence in this Renaissance period where the Medici family, because they were so wealthy and they were bankers, had begun to cultivate the arts. And, um, and so Pope Leo X, Giovanni de' Medici, when he was younger, uh, was actually the pope that kind of battled with Luther over the sale of indulgences. Well, when he was Giovanni de' Medici, he, he uh, grew up with Michelangelo in his house because his father had brought Michelangelo into his home actually to be with him. So you've got Giovanni de' Medici growing up with Michelangelo and this whole period of, of Florentine Renaissance art. And it began to be so humanistic uh, and viewed so humanistically that Savonarola responds by getting the people to turn against this and oust the Medicis. And so the Medicis are banished from Florence and for a, a short period of time you have this Florentine Republic that was headed up by a, ga- a guy by the name of Machiavelli. Um, and when the, the, the Pope, um, the current Pope, kind of on the side of the Medici, sends a bunch of troops in so that years later they're able to take over the city again. It sends Machiavelli into exile. Machiavelli then writes his famous book, The Prince, which is on governance, and he dedicates it to the Medici, trying to get back into good graces. It didn't work. But during this time that Savonarola kind of leads this revival or this reformation of piety in Florence, and they oust the, um, uh, they oust the Medici, uh, he asks everybody to bring their vanities out, uh, their makeup, their, their, their art kind of things, and, and, and what they called vanities, and they burned them. And, and it's, it's what we know as the bonfire of the vanities, Savernola. Okay? Um, so Savernola leads this. He wasn't very politically shrewd. He got outmaneuvered, and eventually uh, he gets burned in the, the square of Florence. Uh, by the way... This is where the David statue was until um, recently, in the last uh, less than 100 years. And then it was moved into the Academy of Art. Uh, but so the David statue's here, and Savernola gets, gets burnt at the stake and killed kind of as a political move of, of regaining control of the city because the, basically the rich elite didn't like that this monk was exercising so much authority. If you go to the square in Florence right now, You can see a a small circular plaque in the tiles uh, right where he was burnt. And you can get a great cup of cappuccino right here. um, Where they're very snobby. They actually won't, if you ask for cappuccino after like 11 a.m., they'll look at you like you're an American. Um, For Italians, cappuccino is a morning drink. Um, And if you ask for an Americano, they they might just walk away. Um, So uh, Savernola gets burnt. Later, years later, when Giovanni de' Medici becomes, so you've got this, this Medici kind of Renaissance guy, uh, very corrupt. Years later, when he becomes Pope, casting a tie-breaking ballot for himself as uh, head of the College of Cardinals, kind of fun how that works, uh, becomes Leo X. He comes back here to celebrate to Florence, and they celebrate and feast for days, and they paint a small boy gold, um, as history tells the story, kind of symbolizing this golden age, you know, borrowing old Greek kind of uh, visual metaphor kind of stuff. And the small boy dies of lead 
lead poisoning a day later, and that's actually kind of recorded in history. But through all that partying, he totally bankrupts the papal treasuries, which leads to the sale of indulgences, uh, which leads obviously to the birth of the Reformation as Martin Luther reacts to the abuses in the church. Anyways, Savernola uh, writes this form of the Hail Mary prayer. Hail Mary, full of grace, this is 1495. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And a form of that uh, is still uh, a form of what's used as the Hail Mary prayer today. Moving quickly along, uh, Pope Clement VII uh, condemns negations of Mary. So in the church, if you began to, to kind of complain about too much veneration of Mary, you, um, you're kind of said to, to calm down here by uh, Pope Clement VIII, and his uh, papacy then supports the creation of what are called Marian congregations and praying the rosary. So you see this slow building up and, and creating room and space for reverence of Mary. By the way, we don't understand reverence of Mary at all in, in the Protestant church because we don't understand veneration of saints either. For the, and I don't know that we quite get this 100% right. I think truth is usually halfway between two extremes. But the Catholic church looks at it and says, um, people that existed here, they exist when they're dead. We, we believe that. We believe that people, when they die, go and be with the Lord in heaven. They still exist. And so, um, if we can ask people to pray for us here, like my small group or my family or even you guys, hey, please pray for me, why can't I ask better people, <laughs> um, no offense, uh, like the saints, to pray for me? Why can't I, why can't I ask them to pray for me? Um, because they still exist. And, and I ought to be able to beseech them on my behalf. And, and, and I think in the Protestant church, we got a backlash to that kind of, idea of, of thinking about the afterlife or the dead in a very common way. And so we kind of live with this hard ceiling. We don't like to think about death. We don't like to really talk about what is. And, and, and we just kind of stay in the very here and now. Um, and I don't know that that's fully correct either. I think if we take our theology uh, at face value, uh, face value, there's no reason um, why we can't begin to think, what does this really mean that people still exist, are still conscious, um, that are in the presence of God, have fellowship with God, uh, and obviously still care about loved ones and things like that. But the Catholic Church is going to have a, a rather robust look at saints. There's different saints for different things um, that you talk to about different issues. Patron saints, meaning the first one, uh, or the chief saint of different areas, like St. Patrick in, in uh, Ireland, by the way, um, St. George, who supposedly uh, slayed a dragon, is the patron saint of England. Most people don't know that. And so that's why uh, I'd always wondered why. Um, did you guys see the movie The King's Speech? So The King's Speech, the older brother abdicates his throne. Remember that? Uh, right on the eve of World War II because he's about to marry a divorced American woman, scandalous back then for pre-World War II England. And, and uh, his name was King Edward, I think, and, and so that's a good British name. And he was abdicating, so his brother was going to come up, and his brother's name was Bertie. 
uh, short for Albert because Queen Victoria had been married to Albert, uh, Prince Albert, who was from where? Germany. It's a great German name. Uh, by the way, uh, Albert's the one that brought the Christmas tree to the court of Victoria. It showed up in the, the Christmas, uh, the, the Saturday evening post in the States. And that picture of Queen Victoria and Prince Albert and their family around the Christmas tree in the late 1800s is what really birthed the phenomena of Christmas trees in America. Um, but so Prince Albert, that's, that's a good German name. But that's not really good on the eve of World War II, is it? So if you remember in the, in the movie, they kind of suggest that he take a different name, and he does, and he takes the name King George. And I, I always thought it was interesting that um, he took the name George because isn't George the guy that got beat by the Americans in the Revolution? Um, that's the way I see it. Why? Because I'm American. Uh, and w- we always see things through a certain perspective. Part of wisdom is learning to get out of your one perspective. Okay? And so, wow, okay, I see it as George is a bad name. But George is the, is the name, basically, of England. It's the patron saint of England. So there's a lot of saints. There's a lot of things you go for. And this idea of grace, Hail Mary, full of grace, is, is this is this very Latin idea that, that salvation is about accruing grace like you would accrue money in a bank account, okay? So the, the Catholic Church, had, I think, had seven different forms of means of grace. Um, mass was, was a form of means of grace. John Calvin actually held Geneva hostage by refusing to perform mass when he first went to Geneva. Uh, and it, would, it was literally like cutting off spiritual food in the mindset of Europe. That, this idea that that's a means of grace. It's a, it's a way by which I get the spiritual nourishment I need not only to live but ultimately to be saved. And so grace is this very uh, important currency um, if you think about kind of a treasure trust, uh, chest or a bank account. Now Mary, Hail Mary full of grace, the idea being her bank account is, is full. So praying to Mary means she has more than enough grace that she can give away to you. It's also why different saints uh, are, are prayed to is because they've accrued so much grace in their life because they're a saint that you can beseech them on behalf of you that they would be gracious enough to give you literally some of their grace or dispense some of their grace to you on your behalf. Um, so you have this very, certainly in the medieval Catholic Church, late, um, uh, late medieval, um, early kind of modern area, you have this kind of um, transactional view of grace and that informs the prayer. So um, Clement VIII begins to really create room for this. We get a mystic, a Catholic mystic who's also a priest. You can go and see if you go into St. Peter's Basilica on the um, south nave, there's actually a statue of Louis de Montfort. And Louis de Montfort was probably one of the bigger influences theologically on four different popes, including Pope John Paul II, who was the pope for most of my youth growing up, uh, and really brought about formalized thinking of Mary as this mediatrix and also Mary as the co-redemptor. And the idea being that we come, through Mary, we come to Christ. So in the face of Mary, we see the face of Christ, which is where we see the face of God. And nobody who comes to Mary uh, then doesn't also come to Christ and therefore God. And so you see this kind of uh, very strong Mary theology being built up. Pope, Pope Clement the Eleventh 
instructs the Holy Office not to persecute anyone using the words immaculate conception when referring to Mary. And then he lays the groundwork, but, but doesn't institute the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. Uh, he establishes the Feast of the Immaculate con- uh, con- Conception for the whole Catholic Church. Uh, and he, um, he begins to follow Louis de Montfort's teachings as well. Now, the Immaculate Conception was something that had been in, in the Catholic world for a while, but you begin to see it at the level of the papacy now. And the Immaculate Conception is simply saying this, it's different than the perpetual virginity. The perpetual virginity was a, an age-old view that Mary always stayed a virgin. Okay, It's the view of perpetual virginity. The view of the Immaculate Conception is the idea that Mary was born without original sin. In the Catholic Church, borrowing from St. Augustine, the idea that was that through the Father, original sin was passed from generation to generation. Um, I think that's fitting that it comes through the dad. Um, <laughs> uh, sins of the Father, um, et cetera, et cetera. But because of Mary's situation, the Catholic Church said she, she was free from the taint of original sin. And therefore, when she gave birth to Jesus, it was this, it was, it was this pure thing. But, so that's the view of the Immaculate Conception. Um, and you begin to see that in the 1700s. Pope Pius Uh, The ninth appoints a commission of theologians. This is now 1852 to 1854. A commission of theologians to draft the the dogma, the church dogma of the Immaculate Conception. The text is finalized and Pope Pius declares the dogma of the Immaculate Conception um, at that point in time. Uh, Following Pope Pius IX, you get Pope Leo uh, XIII, um, and he issues uh, 11 encyclicas concerning the rosary. He institutes the feast of the queen of the holy rosary. He be, uh, beatifies, which is the beginning stages of sainthood, Louis de Montfort, uh, referring to his Marian teachings, um, and then saying we need him. Again, this is the late 1800s, the early 1900s, saying that this is how we're going to fight uh, modernism and revive the Catholic faith. Uh, and then he, he writes that Mary is the mediatrix, again, a mediator between God and humans, and also the co-redemptrix, and he's the first pope to fully embrace her role, fully embrace publicly her role as the mediatrix. Uh, he says that she administers all graces on earth, and he relies on the, on the writings of Thomas Aquinas in his justifications of Mary, and... Um, Thomas Aquinas said this, uh, so going all the way back to the the great Catholic theologian Aquinas in the 1100s, Aquinas said this, she was so full of grace, Mary was so full of grace, that it overflows onto all mankind. It is indeed a great thing that any one saint has so much grace that it conduces the salvation of many. And this is what Pope Leo XIII kind of uses as he builds his view that way. He also then institutes the idea that any of the sites uh, where there's supposedly a, an appearance, an apparition of Mary, that those become um, sites of veneration. So if you have Catholic relatives that different sites around the world, there are veneration sites that they would go to, or even today if you see uh, um, supposedly an appearance of Mary, a, a tree uh, that cries, or a different what you would call miraculous kind of sightings, of Mary, those become veneration sites. Um, so, again, late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, Pope Leo the Thirteenth, Pope Pius the Eleventh. So now this is 
1922 to 1939. Some would call um, him the first um, Hitler pope, um, and then the pope after him would call, be called more Hitler's pope. Um, but you see kind of the time period here that, whoops, that gets mo more modern. I might be off a of pope. Um, that's okay. Um, you guys aren't going to remember. Um, they all wear, they all wear uh, different colors. So, um, so Pope Pius XI engages in discussions about the dogma of the assumption of Mary. And he quotes uh, Bernard de Chervaux, who said that we have everything spiritual we need in Mary. So now this is another view of Mary that she didn't uh, die physically, wasn't buried physically, but that like Elijah in some sense, she was um, assumed up into heaven, body and soul. So the assumption of Mary. What you're, what you're getting here is that this idea that there are a lot of um, very recent kind of developments in the idea of, of uh, Mary in terms of theological developments in the Catholic Church um, with regard to Mary. Uh, he announces the dogma of the Assumption, and then what we get in 1962 at Vatican II, Vatican II lasted from 1962 to 1965, is this idea that um, Mary was declared finally the mother of the church. She'd been viewed that way by many popes, but Vatican II declares Mary the mother of the church, in some sense, the mother of the body of Christ. So she becomes, therefore, for us, the mother of all of us. And so a very intimate relationship with regard to Christians in the church. Uh, and um, we then get this idea that Mary is the pathway to Christ. Um, so John Paul II. John Paul II. Kip, can you click it forward? There we go. Um, John Paul II. Uh, reaffirms Mary as the mother of the church, and then he develops a whole lot here theologically for Mary. He was really big on his devotion to Mary, talked about it very openly, and in his apostolic letter in 2002, he writes this, our entire perfection consists in being conformed, united, and consecrated to Jesus Christ. Hence, the most perfect of all devotions is undoubtedly that which conforms, unites, and consecrates us most perfectly to Jesus Christ. Now, since Mary is of all creatures the one most conformed to Jesus Christ, it follows that among all devotions, that which most consecrates and conforms the soul to our Lord is devotion to Mary, his holy mother, and that the more a soul is consecrated to her, the more it will be consecrated to Jesus Christ. So that's John Paul II. By the way, um, if you look closely at this picture, uh, that's a gun right there. So this is the picture taken right before he was shot in St. Peter's Square. Um, the assassination attempt on his life that really did affect his health uh, long term. And so this is Pope uh, John Paul II um, right before he was shot. Uh, and, I, and just quickly, I want to kind of take it even more current. John Paul was a really humble man. So he um, was known for his humility. He was known for being likable. People like the current Pope, Pope Francis, for many of the same reasons. He feels like somebody we can be in touch with, which is a bit different than Pope Benedict. Pope Benedict um, was appointed by John Paul to take over and head uh, the office 
of what began to be known as the Office of boy, um, something theology of the Catholic Church, which, which was the office of the Inquisition. The office of the Inquisition, the Roman Inquisition, never went away. It just changed its name into um, church doctrine. The, oh, office for the protection, I think, of church doctrine. So the Inquisition changes its name to the office of the protection of church doctrine. And Ratzinger, Joseph Ratzinger, appointed by John Paul II becomes the head of that and therefore was really considered this kind of conservative figure. And so when John Paul II died, a lot of people thought there was going to be a little bit more of a move to somebody in the middle. Ratzinger had been a part of a Hitler youth when he was young. They, people saw that as controversial. Uh, and I was actually standing in St. Peter's Square with John Lemke. Is John Lemke here? You in here, John? Yeah. John remembers. Um, it's actually standing in St. Peter's Square uh, when Ratzinger was declared to be Pope Benedict XVI. Uh, we were having Cuban cigarettes that we bought in, in Belgium um, because it just seemed like the right thing to do. Um, but Ratzinger seemed out of touch for most people compared to, say, Francis. John Paul was seen as very in touch, very humble. And this is a really big thing in the Catholic Church when you look at the history. So I want to show you um, the next slide is kind of inside St. Peter's and you see a lot of these. These are kind of the memorials for different popes. Um, this memorial is uh, I think Alexander VII if I, if I remember right. Um, inside the, the church, very gaudy, lots of marble, uh, all about kind of extolling the virtues of that pope. You see this for lots and lots of popes, certainly the ones following the Renaissance and the buildings of St. Peter's. Uh, and it's really to, 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 to talk about their glory. If you look at his left, uh, if you look at the two people on the, on the bottom, you'll see one of them has got their foot on a globe. We've got a, um, yeah, so that's a, that's a globe. You remember that Pope Henry, uh, not Pope Henry, uh, King Henry VIII left the Catholic Church during kind of the Reformation, saw it as an opportunity to break away so that he could get rid of his wife. And, and in, the, in all of that, you begin to see the birth of the Church of England. There was a real thorn in the flesh for the Pope that dealt with most of this. And so you see the foot is on a thorn um, that is England. See the globe there and you see Spain and, and France. And so the foot is on England. It's a thorn in the foot uh, of this particular Pope. But you see kind of the storytelling of the Pope, and it's really got this idea of glory. And so when you walk all through inside St. Peter's Basilica, you'll see different popes with their kind of grand monuments. The next one is of, of John Paul II's monument. And it's just, a, it's just a, a little round memorial in the floor. Very humble, um, very, very understated. And what you'll see in the middle is the 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 cross, um, the keys, uh, St. Peter's keys that go to the Pope, the papal helmet, um, and then you see, you see the um, shield, kind of the sign of Pope John Paul II. You see the eminent, and that's for Mary. So John Paul II was really, really focused on Mary, saw Mary as having helped him in the assassination attempt, 
and really promoted um, the doctrines of Mary in the Catholic Church to a great extent um, in his lifetime. So where does this bring us all? I don't think I've got any other slides, do I? Nope. Um, so where does this bring us all? Why do we go on this? Uh, let me just first break it down to four, four uh, key, key doctrines. There's a lot of beliefs in the Catholic Church, but four key doctrines with regard to Mary. One, that she's the mother of God, going all the way back to the Council of Ephesus, 431, um, and, and this idea of the God-bearer, the mother of God. Uh, going back to 1950, we get the idea of the assumption into heaven of Mary. If you go, the, the Eastern Orthodox Church, actually right, right outside Jerusalem, has a holy site on what they believe is the burial site of Mary. The Catholic Church would say, no, she was assumed into heaven. Uh, 1854, Pope Pius IX, the Immaculate Conception uh, would be the third of the dogmas of Mary. And then going all the way back to um, symbolism begun in the, sec uh, the third century, the 200s, this idea of the perpetual virginity of Mary. Those are the four dogmas of the Catholic Church with regard to Mary. Um, I walk you through all that because, one, it's, it's the historical views of Mary and the church. Two, I think we see something in here I want to bring out. It's not to take anything away from Mary. If you look back in our text in Luke, you begin to see Mary's song at the end of chapter one. We'll, we'll discuss this more at length next week when we talk about art and justice in the life of Mary. But you see her say in verse 48, that from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. You really do see this idea that Mary is going to be blessed for all times. I mean, things that happen at the center of the Christian story do get known for all times. I've always wondered how Paul could call out Peter in the book of Galatians, right? Call him out by name. I went to Peter to his face because Peter was wrong. And I've always wondered what that conversation was like when Paul went to heaven and saw Peter um, and then like a thousand years later when Peter comes over and says, dude, really? Why? <laughs> I mean, that's what I'm known for, man, is getting it wrong. Thank you. Um, couldn't you have just left it out of the writings and just come to me face to face and then left it at that? I mean, you had to put it in scripture, right? I mean, um, what's your most embarrassing moment, Peter? Well, um, anyways, he's got a lot of them in scripture, right? Um, but things that are at the center of the story are known for all times. Mary is known for all times. She sings about this idea that she's going to be known throughout all generations. But why she's known, she says, is because the, the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. There's something about the story of Mary that's so humble and so meek in its, its origins. A peasant girl maybe 15, maybe 16, with a child, a pregnancy out of wedlock at least. Um, the awkwardness is that coming from a small town, Nazareth, which is not um, the town of kings and um, is a, a, a Jewish Palestinian peasant girl. By the, by the way, the, the word Palestine goes all the way back to the Romans who saw it as the land of the Philistines and kind of created this name Palestine. So even... In most of the, the early 1900s, when the British were after the Ottoman Turks in World War I, and then the British kind of took over that area, it was referred to as Palestine. 
Um, so the, the phrase Palestine is long. She's a Palestinian girl. Um, she's not a Roman citizen. Um, she's a Palestinian. She's a, she's a Jewish girl. And so you see this weakness and this humility. What has a 15-year-old girl done of any greatness, right? Um, you see this kind of weakness that's going on here with this girl. And, and yet God looks at her and finds favor with her. And in God bestowing his, his favor on her, she's now going to be known for all times. And I think we turn weak things into strong things. We don't like weakness. We like strong, don't we? And so when things begin weak, over enough time, we turn that into a strength. We take the weakness of Mary and then we begin to elevate it into her greatness and her stature. Um, we do this in our own lives. We, we take our own weaknesses and we find ways to excuse them and to make it go away. Um, quickly, I don't know, we went to the Ochikos yesterday uh, to cut down a tree, uh, a Christmas tree, because that's what you do when you live in central Oregon. You don't buy it off the lot. You pay $5, and you go cut your own tree. Well, Friday night, I didn't sleep a wink. I, didn't, I literally didn't sleep one minute. Um, my stomach got thrown. That happens a lot to me, and so I was up the whole night. So I was wrecked. So we go out to the Ochikos. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm wrecked. I haven't slept. I'm tired. I don't feel good. I'm weak as a kitten, and I get stuck having to carry a Christmas tree down the mountain with my mother-in-law. And my mother-in-law, like, I had, I had to keep making excuses for myself to stop and put the tree down um, to give my mother-in-law, because she's 60, a break. But it really was because I, I couldn't carry the tree as, in as far a stages as she could. Um, and it was like everything in me was, was, was hating life in that moment of feeling like my mother-in-law um, was stronger than me, right? Uh, there's nothing about weakness that, that feels good. And um, just to take it one step further, so uh, I don't like my dog Peaches. And Peaches has really got a bad disposition. She barks all the time, and, and I don't like her. And um, we brought her out to the woods, and she changes into this little angelic, fluffy white dog, bounding around with her ears going up and down. And, and she's so happy, and I'm all stone-faced and stressed and not feeling good. You know, but this is the kids' tree memory, right? You know, and as a parent, you want these great memories for your kids, and you want yourself in them to be a good memory. You know what I mean? Like, not just the memory, but dad is, is always a, a jolly guy. You know what I mean? Not... Not, man, I remember dad when we were growing up. He was always stressed, you know. And I'm like, can't carry the tree, having to put it down, you know, trying to figure out how to make it the mother-in-law's fault. And there's Peaches, and all the kids are talking about how great she is. And dad, you get it wrong. And I'm all stone-faced and sour, and my back's getting thrown out. And I'm like, this, this really sucks. And there's nothing cool about it. Weakness we, we argue it away. I mean, if, if you're a strong personality, you don't talk about that as a weakness. You talk about, well, at least I get things done. And if you're a laid-back personality, you, you don't talk about how you fail at getting things done. Um, you talk about how much nicer you are, you know, than the people who get the... I mean, we, we, we pivot out of our weaknesses into the strengths, and we, we kind of leave those. And I think the story of Mary... 
in the history of Mary is one of those things where we took this, this unbelievably humble story and we pivot it into the greatness, a human kind of greatness, when I think we can stay right there in the humility of this story and say, what is it that we get to learn? What is it we, we ha- that God has for us in this? And I think there's something radically mind-blowing uh, in this story. Let me, let me take a crack at it, right? Um, anyone ever written up a, any parent ever written up a will to say where your kids would go if you died? Um, we haven't yet, Tamara and I. We talk about it and then we get stumped. And so we're really irresponsible. Um, now I've said that, I'm gonna, um, I don't know. It's one of those things I shouldn't say. Um, it's a really difficult thing to think through where you would place your kids if you died. Something so precious to you and so intimate, right? Can you picture God saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take my son. Can you picture the second person in the Trinity saying, I'm willing to go be born as a human and to live that life. Can you picture how carefully... Especially if you have all knowledge of all people. Like when Tam and I talk about who would we leave our kids to, you know what I mean? Like we just, we, we, we start analyzing flaws against flaws and, you know, like weighing different options out and things like that. And then we get stumped because we don't have all knowledge. We don't know how it would be, right? God looking at all this is, is, is deciding this with so much care and concern. And he chooses a girl of 15 from Nazareth. That's remarkable. I mean, there's so much intimacy in that choice. And I think there's something about that. God, like, um, marrying into humanity with this person of Mary who is as human and as, as authentic as any one of us in this room. And saying, I'm going to put you right at the center of my story. I'm going to put you right at the center of it. You're going to get the fullness of, of my divinity right throughout your life. You're going to walk with it as close as anyone's going to walk with it. You're actually going to raise it to some degree. You're going you're to bandage wounds. You're going to bandage the wounds of God. And you're going to rock this child um, to sleep and sing songs of nurture to this child. There's something so intimate about that. And I think we look at that and we say, it's, it flips our idea of greatness on its head. We all want to be Hamlet in God's grand play of, of being the King David or being the conquering hero or being the whoever it is. We all want to play Hamlet. We all ask God to use us in and the latent thought there is that we're going we're gonna to get used in some mighty way that God really thinks we're special. And because he thinks we're special, we're going to get a grand part. Meaning, we're going to get grandeur. And I've just really started backing up and going, you know what? Getting a grand part maybe doesn't mean we're going to get grandeur or glory. We're going to get a, a front row seat 
of the grandeur and the glory of God and the grandeur and the glory of his story of working in and amongst humans as he works out his plan of salvation. We've, we've got to somehow call out this idea that if God were to really bless us, we would go up in stature. We would go up in, in everybody liking us. We would go up in comfort and having it all bow to us. And, and both Mary and Jesus flipped that idea on its head. And it's like, no, at the center of the story is not human grandeur. But it's the grandeur and the glory of God and the power of God. We fall into weakness. We fall into the grandeur of God. We live out weakness we live into the grandeur of God. Jesus says, I'm the king. I'm your master. I'm above you. And I'm going to serve you. So you want to fall into the grandeur of God. You want to fall into closeness and proximity with the story. You want to fall into closeness and proximity with me. Then fall into service. Fall into um, doing the will of the Lord. So we see something really fascinating here. Turn with me to Luke eleven twenty seven. Luke eleven twenty seven. Somebody comes up to Jesus and they say this. Um, Jesus, I mean, Jesus is just he's just preaching and he's just talking, and out of the middle of the crowd, someone shouts something. And they say this, uh, verse 27, Luke eleven twenty-seven. 27. Uh, someone just shouts out and goes, blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. Blessed is the womb from which you were born, is another translation. Blessed is the womb from which you were born. And Jesus replies, no. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Now, on the surface of this, if we don't do our Bible study, you're going to go, man, Jesus is kind of insensitive to mom. I mean, the answer of why we shouldn't worship mom is because Jesus didn't even treat her well. You know, like, it, that's like, that's like the cursory reading, right? Jesus is insensitive, you know? Um, and all the moms are like, man, he's not appreciative of all she went through. Like, that's, that's a cursory reading. Turn back to, to Luke 1. Turn back to where we get the beginning of the story, the Annunciation. And listen to what Jesus is drawing out here. He's not dissing Mary at all. He's actually saying, here's how you can be like Mary. Here's what was great about Mary. Not just that her body physically carried me, but what was great about Mary is this. The angel talks about her, then he talks about uh, her cousin Elizabeth, and then in verse 38 it says this. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Other versions would be, um, I will do your word. What does Jesus say in 1127? Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. What was marvelous about Mary is the same thing Jesus is saying is 
or can be or will be marvelous about us. In whatever station or situation we're in, that when the word of God comes to us, that we receive that word, take it in, and let it bear fruit in us. Jesus uses the parable of the soils to talk about this. The receptivity of the human heart to take whatever the word of God is, whatever the calling of God is, and to be willing to humbly serve into that place and to then find ourselves walking along with God in the story of God, and that's where our greatness comes. Not in our own stature, but in our proximity to God, that our faithfulness, uh, our faith and God's faithfulness in our life would be the wonderful thing that we could brag about in our story. And we see this in this peasant girl. So to end on this, I, I, I get frustrated at Christmas because we make Christmas all about a good, traditional, Christian Christmas. We do to Christmas what we did to Mary, and we create what we have with this good, traditional Christian narrative. And the, tri- uh, the traditional Christian narrative is this idea of um, the stable, and, and Mary, and there's hay, and it's all these wonderful things. Can I draw? Is this going to work? And we see this business in, in the manger, and it's not even true. And we know that it's not true. Whoa, I've got... Sorry, has it been going for the whole sermon? That light in your eye? No, sorry about that. Um, so this is uh, um, as God's warning me not to ruin the, the Christmas story too much. Um, so I'll just you know I'll just say the nativity scenes. We argue about are you going to let us do a nativity scene? Will the public allow us and in, in the state and and, then, and we don't even have the nativity scene right. Um, the story of the nativity first century homes. Um, were these dwellings of mud with roofs of branches and, and more mud? And the idea is that the guest room in Bethlehem was, uh, so you had these two levels. You had the, the ground level that was up from the entry level and then a higher level here, if you want to look at that, and sometimes an external staircase that would go up here and then onto the roof, like the man that was let down through the roof. There would have been stairs actually probably up to that roof. And... The Greek here is that there was no room uh, in the guest room, okay? There was no inn. The population size of Bethlehem didn't, didn't allow for an inn. That culture, they didn't have inns. If someone from northern Galilee now goes to Bethlehem, who do they stay with? They have cousins there. They stay with family. I talked to, to Palestinian Christians when I was in Bethlehem, and they go to the States sometimes because they have uh, Palestinian Christian relatives in the states where do you think they stay when they go to the states best western right i mean they they travel to the states and they stay with their cousin how much more in in first century palestine with small population and all this that if you get called to a census by by augustus uh, to go back and register and joseph and mary go back to register um, to their hometown guess what they have there Joseph's birth town, guess, guess what they have there? Relatives. So the text here, and the reason we don't change it is because we won't fix lies in Scripture if they're Christian tradition. It's really strange. But every, every Greek scholar knows, archaeologically speaking, knows that there was no room in the guest room, meaning there was no room here or here because there's probably other family there. And so the baby was laid in the manger. First century houses, I, I've actually been in one in, uh, outside of the town of um, Nazareth. 
that the Catholic Church has preserved and, and, and bought, um, that, that has been preserved all these ages and that they've continued to preserve. And so the animals at night, the, uh, the valuable animals at night would be brought in to stay here and there was a feeding trough cut into the ground right here. And so the main family quarters is here because um, there's no room for Mary in either of these areas that would be where you would possibly um, put guests. And so the baby was laid in the manger, the feeding trough for the animals that come in at night. Okay? Um, we don't talk about this because we would rather talk about a traditional Christian Christmas. And we talk about Xmas. You're taking the Christ out of Christmas because somehow we abbreviate and see how we take Christ and turn it into Xmas. Does that show up? But traditionally, until the modern cultural wars of the last couple decades, the X was always the symbol for Christ. Uh, Jesus' name in Greek is, um, is Christ. And it begins with the Greek chi. That's why it's transliterated Christ. And so it, when you get the... Um, the ichthus, you have uh, the eyes for Iesus. Jesus' name begins in Greek with I. Um, this is for Christ. The theta is for God, theos. Um, the U is for huios, which is son of God. And then the, the sigma is for savior, ichthus. But the, the, the chi here, the X, was always a part of kind of just transliterating or abbreviating Christ's name. And so we get into these fights about you're trying to take Christ out of Christmas. And so you'll go, I'll go. Let me just talk about me. I'll go to Walmart and I'll, I'll be thinking about, man, people actually got in fights at Walmarts around the country on Black Friday here, right? I'm like, man, those people are crazy. And I'll go into Walmart and then I'll get ticked off at the crowds. I'll be angry at the lines. Um, I'll be angry at somebody in the parking lot for taking my parking spot, the whole while thinking I'm not like the people that got in fights. And, and, and as I shove all these armloads of debt into the back of the car, because I've bought this lie that it somehow makes me a good dad or a more loving dad if I pile on debt in December every year, right? And so then I'll go home and listen to Christmas songs written in the last hundred years. And, and I'll be like arguing about, um, cultural wars and how we need to have a good traditional Christmas, uh, Christian Christmas. And, and what we begin to lose in all this is that we've drank the Kool-Aid and we've bought into a, a cultural, traditional, Christian Christmas, which is a lot different than saying, I want to live a Christ-like Christmas this year. I want to follow Christ or model Christ or exemplify Christ this Christmas, meaning somehow stepping out of empire and stepping out of power and economics and stepping into humility and finding just that subtle, soft story where God is great and I'm weak in the life of people around me and, and what God is doing in me, my church, or my community, that somehow finding that, even if I'm praying rosary beads, is a heck of a lot better than thinking I've got all of it right, all my theology right, all my Bible right, all my everything right, but never really realizing that in having it all right, maybe I've got so much of it wrong. And looking at the meekness and the weakness and the humility of Mary, says maybe there's something about this. You know Mary's Christmas? 
It was an uncomfortable Christmas. It was an awkward Christmas. It was a painful Christmas. It was a challenging Christmas. It was a family-centered Christmas. So the perfect Christmas isn't about your kids maybe not arguing after they open up all this consumeristic stuff. Um, you know what I mean? And, and that we're going to flip it. So from 9 to 12, it's all about them. And then we expect from 12 to 5 p.m., it's going to be, their concern is going to be all about their, their siblings. It doesn't, you know what I mean? Like it doesn't really work that way. But we, an ideal Christmas for me is that my kids would love each other even though I'm pumping them full of something else. Um, but maybe it's not an ideal Christmas just because it, there's peace in the home. Maybe it's not an ideal Christmas if I get to enjoy dinners at the table with, with my favorite songs or watch Miracle on 34th Street. Maybe it's an ideal Christmas if it's the most uncomfortable, inconvenient, awkward season of my life. But somehow God is working through all of that to do something big in his world through somebody small like me. What I want this Christmas is a bigger shot of God, not a greater experience for myself.